Uh, gracious Father, we gather once more this Lord's Day with our brothers and sisters to sit at your throne of truth. We want to, Lord, look into your word and, Lord, address this topic of the true Israel of God. Lord, and that we might be sober-minded and even in this day that we live in, all the hysteria, all the emotion, Lord, we understand it, but at the same time, we lean upon your word as our foundation and we accept it for what it teaches. And so, Lord, be with us tonight, this afternoon as we seek to bring some clarity to this topic and give us the grace to be gracious and compassionate with those, Lord, that don't see it uh, at this time. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. If you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to read from a uh, a verse and then just begin to unpack that a little bit for you. Uh, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 42 and 43. Now this is our Lord. He is addressing uh, the crowd before him. You can see that we have the parable of the barren fig tree, the parable of the two sons, and the parable of the landowner. All of those are very important to the context. There's, we're not gonna, I'm not going to read that. I'm just going to read his concluding remarks here in Matthew, verse 42. And Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And I'm going to stop reading that, right that point. It's important because as we have already pointed out that there's a lot of, there's a lot of religious people pastors, churches, denominations that are calling for massive aid to be handed over to Israel as they uh, fight with the Palestinians or the Gazans, those that occupy the Gaza Strip there. And it's, it's support that by and large I oppose on many levels. Um, and I guess we could talk through some of that, but I think the first thing that I want us to be aware of is that this ethnic or this nation, Israel, modern day Israel, it's not the Israel of scripture. It's not the Israel of the scripture. Even our Westminster Confession of Faith acknowledges that the nation of Israel expired. When? Well, at AD 70, they were destroyed as a people. They were destroyed as it were. Rome came in under General Titus and he basically wiped Israel, I mean, I mean speaking in war terminology, wiped them off the map. I mean, he broke the nation. There was nothing left. He, he took away all of their institutions of power. There were tens of thousands and thousands, you know, died in that assault and others were dispersed and, and left. And so the question is, is the nation that is, exists today, the Israelites of scripture? And that quick answer to that is absolutely not. What we have over there right now are what we call cultural Judaizers or uh, Zionists, if you will. 
uh, their religion is not the Old Testament. Their religion is out of the Talmud and the Talmud and again, I hate sounding so crass and harsh, but the Talmud is a very evil document. When I say evil, it speaks evil of Christ. In fact, there's a passage there in the Talmud that talks about Jesus Christ being bold in oil in hell as we speak. It is a satanic document. And a lot of Christians don't even realize that. Um, I, I remember being exposed to the Talmud. I guess it was been 15, 20 years ago, and I was shocked because I came with the impression that this was somehow some a biblical document. And I learned quickly that it's, it's not. It's nothing more than a, a false religion. It's a document that teaches a false religion. And it's a document that does nothing but disparage the Old Testament religion and God. And that's what you have in this Zionism, if you will, if you want to call it that, or Judaism, that's why Judaism is not Christianity. We, we, we need to sort of really break the habit of calling ourselves Judeo-Christians. We're not Judeo-Christians, we're Christians. Because Judaism is something totally different. And we're not Judeo-Christians. We're just simply Christ followers, disciples. But the Talmud is a, 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 a very, I, I, wanna, I use the word interesting, not in a good way. It's a very interesting document. And you ought to educate yourself on it. Because they do not like having to answer questions about the Talmud. You see, they don't want to answer those questions. And when they are, when, when this modern state of Israel is pressed, they're going to scream anti-Semitism. Now, why is this important? Why do I need to bring this up? Why, is, why do we, it, 21st century modern church, need to be talking about this right now? Well, because it is a satanic attack on Christianity. There are there's more than enough proof out there if you just do a simple search that they are doing everything they can to silence Christian preaching as anti-Semitic. Any preaching that exalts Christ is anti-Semitic. They go to passages like Acts 2. If you, if you look there in your Bibles, turn there with me, if you will. Um, This is a text of scripture that they often will go to. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, and this is Peter's sermon, as you know. It says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know this man delivered over to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death now stop when that text is highlighted by them they say see you're calling us God haters you, you th this is anti-semitic you're accusing us of being the murderers of Jesus so to speak and that's anti-semitic now, anti-Semitism is a modern term. It's not an old term. It was created during the Bolshevik Revolution by those Russian Jews, that the same Jews that occupy the nation of Israel. Now, those European cultural Zionist Jews, not the Jews of Scripture, not the, not the Israelites of Scripture, they were gone. These are cultural Zionist uh, Judaizers, but the Bolsheviks, the, the majority, what a lot of people don't realize, well, the majority of the Russians, Stalin was a cultural Jew. Most of his military cabinet were Zionists. And what was the Bolshevik revolution? What was it? It was an attack to exterminate Christianity. 
Russia was a Christian nation. You go back and read the history of Russia. It was rich in the Protestant preaching of the gospel. Now this is back, the, this is the late 1700s up into the 1800s. These czars were Christians and they were murdered, they were massacred along with millions of others. Anti-Semitism was a hate speech law that was created in order that if anybody spoke against the regime, they were tried as, as, as um, traitors. It was used to silence any questioning of the state. Do I have to make the connection for you now? The same thing is happening here. We have the governor of Florida. We have several state representatives. We have several congresspeople, several senators that are clamoring for and stronger anti-Semitism laws where there can be no one that can speak, a question anything Israel does. This should strike fear in the heart of every American. But it doesn't because of poor theology. So what you believe matters. And it will be used against Christian churches. I don't know if you follow, I, I, I have no, uh, do not care for Ben Shapiro. A, a conservative talking head. Listen to what he says about Israel and about Jesus and about Christians. When it comes down, see, he's all nice but then when they're questioning, when he won't support, the true Jewish personality comes out. And there's a, there's a line drawn. He will draw that line very clear in the sand, and he's already done so. And, and to the tune of if America doesn't go over there and basically fight that war with, for them, they will use nuclear war uh, instruments. That's a threat. So we have to really understand the environment we're living in. It's totally unprecedented. Totally unprecedented. Um, I'm not sure I need to say anything else. Look, uh, uh, Jordan Peterson, all of these um, advocates, Ben Shapiro and many others are coming and really showing their true colors because um, the press is lying to us most of the time. Most of the time. It's, it's, it's mostly lies mingled with a little bit of truth. When they talk about the, the Gazans have killed 10 Americans, they weren't Americans, they were, Israel, they were Israelites, they were Israelis, not Israelites, Is, Israelis with dual citizenship. That's not Americans. You're an American. You're an American. I'm an American. That's not an American. And many of our state, many of our, our, our Congress people and senators have dual citizenship. How do you think they will vote? To send billions more dollars over to another nation that hates us, that ultimately hates us that ultimately says it's okay for them to guard their border, but it's not okay for us to guard our border. That's anti-Semitic, that's hate, that's prejudice, that's racism. And now they're even talking about opening up the, 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 the border wider to receive these Gazans that need a place to go because they don't want them over there anymore. We are living in dangerous days. And I don't mean to, it's certainly not fear-mongering because I'm not afraid. I know who's in charge. <laughs> and, and, if, and if we go home to be with the Lord, we go, then Paul, like Paul said, that's to my, our advantage. But while we're here, we need to know the truth. So 
The text I read to you is very clear. Jesus is telling these, the nation of Israel, he's telling these religious leaders that their time is up. Their time has come to an end. There is going to be a transition in, as it were, in this, in the kingdom of God. And, and it's not, it's no longer going to be primarily through the nation of Israel. But now the kingdom of God is going to be focused in the people of God being both Jew and Gentile, the church. Now let's look at another, let's look at a passage of scripture that will help us see this from the Old Testament and then we can go and look at some of the Old Testament text as well to demonstrate our point. Uh, turn to Ephesians chapter two. We're gonna look up several Old New Testament texts. But Ephesians chapter two I find important because it helps, it describes for us the, the larger picture that's at hand here. And Paul is very clear about this. Um, I want to begin reading at verse 11, and I'm just going to offer sort of a running commentary down through these verses, tying a few things together. Um, verse 11, Paul writes, now you see how important the upper portion of... Uh, chapter two is, right? You see the context. Y'all know this context. Y'all have heard it preached probably dozens of times in your, in your Christian experience. So at verse 11, he says, now therefore remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision, that's what the Jews called the Gentiles, the uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant, covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Let's stop there. Paul is, is recognizing the role that the, 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 the family of Abraham played in the world. The family of Abraham was going to be a witness, a light to the whole world about the kingdom of God, about heaven, about what it is to be restored to God, what it is to have a relationship with God. Put it this way. Abraham and his descendants were to be the world's missionaries. But they were also a nation, a people with laws and such. But that's who they were. That's what God had called them to. If you go back and you read Deuteronomy, particularly those first four chapters, that's what it says. You're going to be a light to the world. Um, so let's continue but say they were, but, but so what he's saying is that the Gentiles were without God in that sense. That mean they couldn't get saved. We know there were some Gentiles saved in the Old Testament. Rahab is one of those Gentiles. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, he comes out of nowhere. He's a Gentile. He saved. He was a high priest of God. Where did he come from? Somehow, some way, he had heard the gospel, he had repented of his sins, he had accepted Christ as his savior. We also have Melchizedek, who is another Gentile, who is what? Even a type of Christ. So it's not that there was no salvation out of Israel. Paul is speaking covenantally and ordinarily, just like our confession says about the church. It says in the confession that there is no ordinary way a man can be saved outside the church. That means where does the, where does the blessings in the gospel, where do they belong? In the church. That's where the gospel's preached. These are the things, the custodians, if you will, of the truth and preaching the gospel. He's not saying there is no possible way that people can be saved. He said, ordinarily, this is how it works. Then you have Romans 10, the sending of the, the preacher. How will he go? Unless he's what? Sent. Sent by whom? Well, the church. 
So you can see the connections. I try to make them, but I'm, I'm really hoping that you have studied enough that you can follow along with me and I don't have to just always work out all the granular details. So he's, that's what he means in verse 12. And then he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, that is from these covenants and from Christ, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that in Christ, these two groups go away. In Christ, there is only one new man called the church. It is made up of Jews and Gentiles. It's made up of both groups of people. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, uh, this law of commandments. I believe he's talking about ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was given to Israel in the Old Testament to help keep them segregated in some sense from the well, sinful nations. It helped preserve them, okay? Even though they were to be a witness and a light through their ordinary interactions and such, they also had to fulfill these ceremonial customs and ordinances which did keep them from having a very, a very close relationship with the Gentiles, such as the dietary laws. What do we see God doing in the book of Acts in the beginning with the dietary laws? What does he tell Peter? Peter has a vision. You, do you remember the vision? There was a sheet. What was on the sheet that came down out of heaven? all of these unclean things, these animals. And what was Peter's response? I don't touch the unclean things. And what was the message? What was Christ's message to him? No, it's done away, it's taken away. Now go to Cornelius, go to this Gentile, eat with him, fellowship with him. That's been taken away. Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. And so now there can be this close communion between the Jew and the Gentile. Why? Because Christ has brought the two together in himself. He's their peace. That's what Paul says. He is our peace. Notice in verse 14, he himself is our peace. That's our, me and you. He broke down this barrier and he says what? One in verse 15, he made the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Peace between the two groups. The hostility is erased in Christ. Now listen, why is this important? Because this text contradicts this whole idea that's been conjured up, and I don't know who started it, of this theology called replacement theology. And here's the, here's the gist of it. We're accused of anti-Semitism because we teach that the church has replaced Israel. That's not what I said, and that's not what Paul said. The church doesn't replace Israel. The church is Israel. The church is the new Israel of God. The church is the fulfillment of going back to those promises made to Abraham, to those promises that Paul highlights in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. We're going to get there, I think. <laughs> Every time. But so we don't believe in replacement theology. We believe in the fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham has come to fruit in what Paul says in verse 15 is the two now made one, okay? In verse 16, he says, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross 
by it having put to death the enmity. That is, this, this separation is gone. There's nothing but one, one people now. This, we're no longer Jews and Gentiles, so to speak. When we come into Christ, the cross is the focus. And that's what Paul says. Through the cross, in verse 17, and he came and preached to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of our God's household. Look at that. Having been built on the foundation of the apostle and prophets. Okay? Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What did we read in Matthew 21? The chief stone that the builders rejected. Why? Because the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, by and large, what? Rejected Jesus. They didn't want him. They despised him. They hated him. Okay. Now, does that mean that all the Jews weren't uh, hated him? No. Many came to faith. Look, Peter, John, Andrew, Matthew. Um, in fact, we have a very Jewish church in the first century, by and large. And we see the churches working together. The church at Jerusalem was called the Mother Church. And we see the churches at Corinth and Galatia and Cappadocia and whatnot giving money to the suffering Jews in Jerusalem because of the persecution of Caesar. Because they saw themselves as what? One church. Now, this is answering a lot of questions, isn't it? And it shouldn't be that hard to understand. It's not hard. I, don't, I mean, if I can understand it, I think most people can. He says this. Now, I want you to notice this terminology in verse 19. Paul says that what? Well, we're a part of God's household. That was reserved for who? Abraham's family. Because we will see what, we're part of Abraham's family. He says there in verse 21, when he talks about Jesus being the chief cornerstone, what is it? Jesus is the chief cornerstone that aligns the prophets and the apostles. He sets them at square. They, they, the, this building that is being constructed, which is the church, the household of God is being constructed. And the household of God, this church, rests upon this foundation of the prophets, Old Testament, why? Because the Old Testament prophets, the, the people of God in the Old Testament was not a ethnic people. They were a covenantal people. They were a people by covenant. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Don't let that go. Write that down in your notes. They were, they were God's people not by ethnicity. They were God's people by covenant. That's what made Israel unique. What made Israel unique was that God made a covenant with Abraham. Not their skin color. Not who they were in an ethnic sense. It was by God's grace and covenant. That's it. In verse 21, it says, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple. Look at there. We've got Old Testament terminology describing the what? We're called a household. We're called God's household. We're called a building. And now we're called a temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit because you are now living stones, living stones. Jesus is the high priest in the spiritual temple. And the church is a spiritual temple, a spiritual house that's being built up. Christ is its minister, so to speak. Why? Because my words cannot help you. His words save you. 
He keeps you saved. He's ministering and the power of the spirit that Jesus sends out is making that word effectual to us. Why? Because the elect will be saved. The elect will be justified. The elect will be sanctified. The elect will be glorified because of the effectual nature of the ministry of Jesus who is our high priest, our prophet, our king. Okay, um, turn to Romans. So any, any questions here? Turn to Romans 2. I, and I would say, you know, we find ourselves, I don't want to say at a disadvantage, but we do find ourselves historically in a very unique place because when we begin pointing these things out, we're looked at as twisting the scriptures. And I'll, have we twisted anything? I mean, it basically says what it says, right? And we're just accepting it. We're not twisting it to mean something else, are we? Well, let's continue that. Um, I tell you what, let me do this. I'm going to hold your place in Romans 2. Let's just go to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. All right, I'm going to read the first, I don't know, 15 verses or so, and I'm going to again put it in context, and I'm going to show you um, why everything we've already talked about is seamless. It just, it just perfectly fits. Now, it says in verse one, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountain and after he sat down, the disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that's important. Keep that in mind. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, in all of those descriptions, that's very... Old Testament-like. But here's the point I want to make. These are all great characteristics of grace. This is exactly what they were to be called in Abraham. This is exactly what God's people are to be. These character, that's why Jesus, in teaching this in preaching this sermon, but in highlighting these beatitudes, he can even command us to what? Be merciful, be kind, be poor in spirit, be pure in heart, be peacemakers, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and be meek. You see how that seamlessly flows into the broader understanding of grace and a change of heart. Now, who's he preaching to primarily in this context? Israelites, right? And then he, notice, he goes, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, that's true because they really, Jesus had been started garnering a reputation for himself and he was drawing all kinds of bad attention and they, were, they didn't like Jesus. And he was telling them, listen, as you follow me, people are gonna hate you. They're gonna come against you, but blessed are you who continue to follow me and listen to me. And that's what he's saying. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, who did he just highlight? Who did he just say was going to persecute them? The ones who persecuted the prophets. Now, who were they? Israelites. Guys, are you seeing it? 
what Jesus is saying is, listen, these are grace. This is the nature of the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of God. These are the blessings, the beatitudes that belong to you and the rewards of these things. And guess what? When people come against you, don't worry about it. You'll be blessed. Stay the course, if you will, because those who persecuted the prophets will persecute you. Now, notice what he goes on to say in verse 13. For you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a a basket, but on the lampstand and gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light shine before men, such as in a way they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Guess what? That was the job of Abraham and his descendants to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And now we use this in a very Christian way, don't we? We're to be the light of the world. We're to be the salt of the earth. But notice the context of the sermon is Jesus is already saying what had already been stated. You are to be, Israel was to be the light of the world. Why? Because God was in their midst, so to speak. By their laws, by their interaction, by the way they treated one another. He says, let your light shine. Now he's talking to those who's listening to him. He says, hey, look, let your light shine. He's just continuing this. Now, here's where it gets really, really good. In verse 17, he says, do you think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets? I did not come to abolish the law or to to abolish, but fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, here's here's where Jesus begins helping them understand the future. Don't interpret my presence as abolishing the moral law. I'm not. I'm not doing that. I came to fulfill it. And I think there's also an aspect of him fulfilling the ceremonial law here. He says, now look, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. For whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20 sets the context for the whole conversation. You are going to be the light and salt. The Pharisees are not. They're not light and salt. They're not the true sons of Abraham. Go back and read John 6, John 8, John 10, where Jesus says, if you were of my, if you were of my father, uh, the father Abraham, you would what? Listen to me, but you are of your father, the devil. You see, Jesus is here helping us understand. He's helping his listeners. Listen, you are the sight and the law. This is what Israel was to be in the Old Testament as a religious covenantal nation. And this is what the church is going to be. The church is going to be the sight, the light and salt of the world. But I say to you, Jesus says, he says, unless your righteousness surpass the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not. If you, if you stay like them, you won't possess this kingdom. Remember what I read in the very beginning? I'm going to take away the kingdom from you and I'm going to give it to someone else bearing the fruit of it. You see that? And then he goes into the, you've heard it said, but I tell you statements. Correcting all of this. Turn to Matthew 15 and then we're going to look at Romans again. We may go a little longer today. In Matthew 15, he's talking about these commandments. And of course, Jesus is, if you look at verse one, Jesus is confronted with the scribes and the Pharisees, the tradition of the elders. And, 
You know, why do you, I mean, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Why do they violate the tradition of the elders? And now Jesus begins to tell them that they invalidate the word of God. And look at verse 12, or this is sort of the end of it. But in verse 12 said, the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, every plant my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind guide, uh, if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. What is Jesus telling the disciples? He's like, look, they are not of my father. They're not of my father. Yes, they are. Jews, but they're not by covenant. They are not of the, they are not of the grace covenant of Abraham. My father didn't plant them. Stay away from them. Now let's go to Romans 2. Verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that which is of the, of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God." Now, turn to Deuteronomy 30. That is what I'm, what we're seeing, the Old Testament is not, the New Testament is not at all contradicting the Old Testament at all. What Jesus is here saying, what Paul is saying is that who's the real Jew here? Remember, listen, it's not ethnicity. It's by grace. God's people are a people of grace. Abraham was by grace. He was saved by grace. His descendants are of grace. And those that are not of grace are not his true descendants. So the promises only pertain to Abraham and those who are of grace, which would mean the church who is the fulfillment, the ultimate goal was not to keep the family of Abraham in the picture. The goal was always the fulfillment of the two people into one, the household of God being the whole church. Look at Deuteronomy 6, 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. That's the goal. That was always the goal. It was never just physical circumcision. And whatever Israelite stopped at physical circumcision was was not of God. They were not of the people of God. You think about, uh, this just came to sort of my mind in a little bit, but you think about um, Elijah in his day of apostasy. Now, who's, you know, uh, Ahab was a, Jew. <laughs> he was a Jew, but he was an apostate. And he really, he rankered back and forth between God and idols, God and idols. I mean, you know, his wife was a rank idolatrist. And she was just constantly leading him astray. But he was too weak to do it. And he wasn't, he wasn't of grace. And he waffled back and forth on these things. But interestingly enough, it's what God says to Elijah when he feels like he's all by himself in this nation, right? God goes, now look, there were more than 7,000 people in Israel. But what does God tell Elijah? I have 7,000 that has not bowed a knee to Baal. What does God tell us in that? What, what, what's, what's the point? Point is, yes, there was a whole nation of people, but they weren't all God's people.
The remnant was God's people. The remnant were the ones who lived by faith in the coming Son of God. And that's what you see right here in Romans. And that's why Paul easily makes this transition from the family of Abraham right on into the church in the spiritual sense. Because why? Circumcision was always a spiritual work of the spirit on the heart. Look at, let's look at um, chapter four. What shall we then say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Now, notice he's talking to both Jews and Gentiles in Rome. This is a, 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 um, a mixed church. And what does he call Abraham? Our father. Okay. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is credited as a favor, but uh, not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? That's a good question. Is, it, is, it for, is this blessing both for Jews and Gentiles? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. You see the argument Paul's using here in a very logical way to destroy this, this dichotomy. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcisions, but also follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the what? World was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. Point being is this, beloved. Paul argues brilliantly here. Abraham is the heir of the world. How? By faith. By faith. All who put their faith in Christ are the descendants of Abraham by covenant, not by ethnicity. You and I are not ethnic Jews. We are Jews spiritually. We are Jews covenantally, if you will, because we, like Abraham, remember what Paul argues, Abraham had faith while uncircumcised he was he was a gentile paul is saying god made him the father of the jews by what grace and by that grace he became circumcised as a seal of that faith that came to him by grace and so therefore, whether they're circumcised or uncircumcised, Abraham is the father of all who believe. I find that to be very, very clear. Turn to Galatians 3. 
Paul argues in a very similar way in the book of Galatians because of the legalism that was um, encroaching upon the church and causing the church to alter its doctrine and practices, if you will, alter really the gospel. And that's why Paul gave such a warning at the beginning of Galatians about if there's anyone comes to you and preaches a gospel that you have not heard from me, whether it be men or angels, well, let them be a curse, let them be anathema. Basically, that means let them be damned. Anybody that comes to preach a false gospel is to be damned. That's, that's dangerous, okay? Um, again, for the sake of time, you could, the whole chapter is worthy of just sitting down and really working through it carefully using this kind of using the argument we've been looking at all throughout these passages. But, um, look at verse 23 and following says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now, but now that faith has come, we no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, is neither, or there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Galatians 6, I didn't know if you caught this this morning. I started to say something about it, but it really didn't add to what I was already doing. But um, look at the tail end of chapter 6. And he's right there, verse uh, 15 says, neither, there is neither circumcision, for neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision now, we know that those two things don't matter when it comes to faith, right? Look at what we already read about Abraham. When did Abraham have faith in Christ? Before or after circumcision? Before. So Paul, and again, now you know the, the, the Jews here, the Pharisees made a big to-do about the circumcision. Remember the whole argument in the book of Acts on 15? Remember what they were saying? Well, they have to believe in Christ and be circumcised. Remember, that was the argument, okay? Well, you see what Paul is doing here. He says, no, neither of these two things are what matters, but a new creation. The reason a new creation matters is because that's the true circumcision of the what? Heart. When our hearts are circumcised by faith, we become what? New creations in Christ. So this is the, what I'm trying to show you is the same thing from the Old and New Testament. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now what he's saying is to those who will understand that this is what matters, faith, not works. To those who walk by faith, to those who will walk by this rule, that is this faith, this doctrine, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. That means don't come into the Israel of God with these legalistic rules because it's not circumcision or uncircumcision that matters. It's a new creation. It's a new heart that only the Spirit can give, and it comes by faith in Christ. And it's those who have faith in Christ that are the true descendants of Abraham and here the Israel of God.
Um, any, we're pushing an hour here. Are there any, um, if there are questions, we can turn the recording off and certainly address those. But everything that I've gone through, if we go to now and we read Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, this covenant made with Abraham, there's no contradiction. There's not any contradiction. All of those doctrines and those truths, as Paul, look, what does Paul do in Romans 4 in the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit? Paul gives us a spiritual interpretation of what went on with Abraham. Paul, if you will, is giving us a front row seat in here's the intention, here's what happened. This was the reality and the result of God coming to Abraham, preaching the gospel to him, and him accepting Christ to come and being what? Circumcised of heart, which his physical circumcision, circumcision was a token of. Just like when we're baptized, physical baptism is a sign of a spiritual inward reality if we have faith in Christ, that we've been what? Washed, made clean, set apart. That's why we talk about improving your baptism. What are we talking, why? Because we're living up to what that symbolizes in our life, that I have been washed, I have been made clean, I have been brought into a new family, cleaned up, cleaned off, now made ready to sit at the table of God Almighty, and this is a true reality of my own heart. I know I just got to preaching a little bit, but listen. What's going on over there right now has nothing to do with us in, in one sense. In a very, in a modern political sense, it has a lot to do with us because we're going to, they're trying to drag us into it. And, and listen, brothers and sisters, don't misunderstand me. People are dying. I, we should never glory in that. when there's wars, atrocities happen. And we should never applaud those things. But what is going over there is evil fighting evil. It's evil fighting evil. They have, they're both guilty of poking each other in the eye and screaming victim. And Israel's just had the luxury of having the backing of a superpower, and that's the United States. And I hope we do not, I hope we are not dragged into World War III in any way. But there, I really believe that that's what they're, the Ukraine didn't work. Ukraine didn't work. So now it's going to be Israel. And it mean, it seems logical politically. Why? Because we have so many allegiances to Israel over here in our own government, which ought to be dealt with. It's not their sons and daughters that'll, be, that'll shed their blood, it's ours. And that's why you see there's a lot of people on social media going, my sons will not go to war for Israel. My sons are not gonna fight for Israel. I'm not sending my son, hey, and we have to think about it this way, nor my daughters. Because, see, they too now are combatants. See, because we all want equality, right? Thank you, feminism. That's what it got you. And that's why you start seeing all of these women posting these memes about cooking in the kitchen going, who needs, you know, who needs feminism now? No, they don't want to go to war. But that's exactly what's going to happen. Why? Because Israel sends their women to war. Y'all know that? There's countless images online of Israeli combatants that are female. It just upsets me because we have gotten away from our Christian heritage and this is the
But when it comes to God and prophecy and fulfillment of the Bible, the church is the fulfillment of Israel. And that Israel wants to silence this Israel and, and accuse it of anti-Semitism. And what they'll do with that, if they have their way, my guess, it's just my opinion, I'm not a prophet, they will be able to stifle the preaching of the gospel. They will be able to stifle the preaching of the gospel if they have their way. Because you have to remember, they are no fans of Jesus and they despise the church and they mistreat Christians all the time. All right, let's 